Greetings, comrades. And as you can see, I've got a new fresh look for today's fourth episode. And not too much to say in the little intro segment here. I do want to say I'm pretty short on recording time this week. My schedule is pretty tight. So what was going to be basically a long fourth episode will be cut up into a short fourth episode and a short fifth episode. And today I am going to jump right into the subject matter because again, don't have a lot of time. So I hope you guys got your beer bongs ready because we're gonna go in deep today. We're gonna to be examining a lot of the greater mysteries of the universe. We're going to examine what it means to be a person in relationship to the universe, and also how you yourself can become a better human being. So in my absence from YouTube, I spent some time learning about a bunch of different philosophies of the world, and I became quite enamored with Eastern philosophies and Eastern religions, things like Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, and so on and so forth. And while I myself am not a religious man by any stretch of the imagination, and I'm not a religious man to this day, a lot of the teachings that I learned in this process helped change my life for the better. And I want to try and communicate some of those to you guys today. So to start this off, I need to introduce you guys to a couple of different figures that we're going to be discussing today. The first one here is Mr. Alan Watts. Watts' work has been very influential for me. I've resonated very strongly with what he teaches and what he says. So if you don't know who Alan Watts is, he is basically a philosopher born in 1913, I believe, and then died in the 1970s, who popularized Buddhist and Hindu and Taoist philosophy to a Western audience. And to this day, I don't think there's anybody who does a better job in conveying those concepts to people who weren't born in those regions. And I cannot recommend anybody better if you are interested in studying Eastern religion and philosophy. Mr. Watts is hands down the best resource out there. I thought long and hard about how I wanted to tie this video together. And we're going to listen to one of his lectures and I'm going to break it down for you and tie it back into a lot of the themes that we've been discussing on this show. But before I really jump into that, there's another figure that I need to introduce you to. This is George Gurdjieff. And George Gurdjieff is an Armenian philosopher and composer and spiritual teacher. And while I have read some of Gurdjieff's work, I haven't really delved into it to the point where I could consider myself an expert. But for the lecture we're going to be discussing and analyzing today, I wanted to introduce you to Gurdjieff because his philosophies will be referenced in the lecture. And the idea mentioned in the lecture is Gurdjieff's four ways. So essentially he postulated that every person is born into one of three different types of people. People who are focused on intelligence, people who are focused on emotion, and people who are focused on physical prowess. However, you can transcend these base three attributes by essentially combining them into what he calls the fourth way. And all of these ways are designated by a label that he gives them. So what does he call these archetypes? Well, the first archetype is the fakir. The fakir represents the body. The next is the monk, and the monk represents emotion. And then lastly, we have the yogi, who represents intelligence. However, these three schools are not what we're going to be talking about today, because in order to improve yourself on these three skills, there is a lot of material out there. 
However, there is a fourth skill, a fourth way, if you will, and that is called the way of the sly man. And today I'm going to teach you about the way of the sly man who represents a work on your inner being, which transcends these basic levels. Now, before I begin, I do want to talk about a couple things. I'm going to probably title this episode a little bit clickbaity and call it something like Jordan Peterson versus Alan Watts. And while I don't think that these guys have opposing philosophical views, what I do think is that if Watts were to listen to Peterson today, he would say that he is still stuck on that surface level analysis, those kind of base level analysis, and he's not reaching the higher level. He's not transcending to what it actually means to be a human being. So while they aren't opposed, I think that Watts is on a much higher plane. So without further ado, I'm just going to jump into this lecture here. Just to give you some context, we're going to jump in at a point where he's talking about the middle way, which is a Buddhist term. And when you're talking about the middle way, I want you guys not to think of like a middle point in between a flat line, but think about the middle way as the point in between a triangle, say, the peak of a pyramid, the peak of a mountain. So not necessarily the middle way, but could also be interpreted as the higher way. So we're going to begin here. Unfortunately, there's some background music that I wish wasn't there. I feel like his work doesn't need this kind of background music, but it is what it is. I'll do my best to minimize and get rid of it. So without further ado, we're going to jump right in here as he's discussing the Buddhist middle way. When the Buddha first discussed the middle way, he put it like this. He said, to try and solve the problem of suffering by immersing yourself in pleasure only leads to a hangover. To try and solve the problem by asceticism also brings no liberation. You merely get tied up in a kind of masochism where you say, I know I'm right just so long as I'm hurting. And all that is doing is expiating your kind of infantile guilt sense. And I just want to stop right here and say, unfortunately, in a lot of left-wing circles, that is a problem in the way they think, that they think they can solve the problem of suffering by simply immersing themselves in suffering. And as I mentioned before, all that you kind of get is this perpetual cycle of just so long as I'm hurting, I know that I'm right. And yeah, that's not the way, unfortunately. All right, let's continue here. So he said there is a middle way between asceticism on the one hand and hedonism on the other. But actually, the middle way is more subtle than that, and it's beautifully discussed in Professor Baum, a book called The Philosophy of Buddha, Professor of Philosophy at the University of New Mexico. And he gives a very, very fascinating analysis of the middle way in the form of a dialogue, whereby the, it works simply like this. The student brings a problem to the teacher and he says, I suffer and it's a problem to me. And the teacher says, you suffer because you desire. If you didn't desire, you wouldn't suffer. So try not to desire. And the student goes away and says, I'm not very successful in this. I can't stop desiring. It's terribly difficult. And furthermore, I find that in trying to stop desiring, I'm desiring to stop desiring. Now, what am I to do about that? And the teacher replies, do not desire to stop desiring any more than you can. And so 
The student goes away and practices that. But he comes back to the teacher and said, I still find myself desiring excessively to stop desiring, and it doesn't work. So the teacher says, do not desire too much not to desire to stop desiring. Now, do you see what's happened? Step by step, almost like Achilles approaching the tortoise, the student is being brought together with himself. So let me just stop here. And if you guys are kind of Hegel heads, you know, if you study a lot of Hegel, I feel like what he's describing right there is similar actually to the Hegelian dialectic. And that's not the Hegelian dialectic, which was sort of taken by Marx and reformed to match the way he saw the world and its conflicts politically. Now, the Hegelian version of dialectics, it's, it's much more on an individual level. So essentially what Hegel postulated is that how do we figure out what consciousness is? How do we figure out essentially what ourselves are? Well, the only way we can do that is by taking something that isn't us and comparing ourselves to that. So let's say, you know, we'll take that. I got my phone here. You know, I take my phone and I compare it to me. It's like, well, you know, it's solid like I am, but you know, it's hard, not like me. It's not alive like me. So the phone and I share very few qualities in common, but we do share some qualities in common. So I take that and the various things that um, are like me about the phone and are not about the phone. And then I say, okay, so I'm like the phone in this way, but not the phone in this way. So let me compare myself to something else. You know, we're going to myself to water here. <laughs> so I compare myself to water and I see water is a liquid. I'm not a liquid, right? And so on and so forth. Over time, I go through this series of comparing myself against things that aren't myself. And slowly through that process, I learn who I truly am. In Hegel's interpretation, what ends up happening is that through this process of comparing yourself to things around you, you eventually learn that you yourself are consciousness and everything around you is consciousness. Alan Watts is kind of talking about a similar idea here where basically you go out and continually try and compare yourselves to aspects which are not yourself in order to find which is the right version of you. And he's going to explain that a little bit more right here. To the point where he catches up with his own inner being and can accept it completely. So there, that's the accepting of the Hegelian dialectic or accepting of the You see the most well. difficult thing to do, to accept oneself completely. Because the moment you can do that, you have in effect done psychologically what is the equivalent of saying in philosophical or theological terms, you as you are now are the Buddha. Just as I was explaining a few minutes ago. That's unbelievable. Because we are always trying to get away from ourselves as we are now in one fashion or another. And it's only we, we will only stop doing that through a series of experiments in which we try resolutely to get away from ourselves as we are. So that is the middle way. So what he's talking about here is I like to think of maybe when you're a teenager, right? And you're trying out all these different weird things that you think are part of your personality. But as you grow older, you start to learn, wait a minute, this wasn't actually who I, I, I was. I wasn't a goth kid or whatever. You know, I'm actually this. And then over time you learn, hey, I'm not this thing. 
this is what I actually am. And like he says, through a series of experiments, you keep trying to get away from who you are to find that ideal version of yourself. And to find that ideal version of yourself is extremely difficult, as he mentions that essentially this is the work of what Buddhism is, trying to find a version of yourself which you are so completely at home with and so completely at ease with that essentially you reach the state of nirvana. That is the middle way. But ordinarily in these other ways, the way of the yogi, the fakir, and the monk. So remember, those were the ways that I mentioned before the lecture here. You have the yogi who represents intelligence. You have the fakir who represents the body. And then you have the monk who represents emotion. And he's talking about how in the process of improving these three aspects of ourselves, a lot of work and effort is expended in getting there. The individual makes a big thing out of the work of liberation and especially likes the kind of teacher who will put him through the most severe paces. It's interesting how there arise from time to time schools in the West where someone comes along offering, people say, look, it's all very well to go to discussion groups and talk about these things. But that's not the real thing. What you need is really to get down and do some work. And often these teachers are very rude and very stern, but people love it. And such a person will always attract a great following. Because people get the feeling, now we are at serious business here. This is really something, you see. I love the way he describes it. To me, it's like such a great roast against these people that basically they're just doing useless work for useless work's sake. But let's unpack that because that's one of my favorite parts about this series. Who do you think he's describing right there? Who does it sound like he's describing in that little blurb right there? To me, it sounds a lot like he's describing somebody like Jordan Peterson. And it's amazing that, you know, 60 years or 50 years essentially before this guy comes on the scene, Alan Watts predicts that basically we're going to have somebody exactly like him show up and he's going to attract a great following because he basically convinces people that they're actually doing the serious work that needs to be done. <laughs> In reality, they're not. And last episode, I talked about the generic conservative argument, responsibility, bro. And I mentioned that there are some personal problems you can legitimately responsibility, bro, your way out of. However, what I didn't mention is that there are some personal problems that you cannot responsibility bro your way out of, and we're going to learn about that right now. And this, you see, though, can be an awful problem. Let's suppose that you have some difficult and distressing habit, like drinking too much, and you're assured that once you've become the victim of this habit, it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to get rid of it, and it requires intense willpower. And so... That kills you right off. You're a dead duck from then on. It's as if you see you had said to the devil one morning, look, I'm going to get rid of you. I'm not going to have anything to do with you anymore. So the devil, who is an archangel and is terribly clever, is all set for you. And because he knows that you are getting out of his way, surrounds you with greater temptations than you ever imagined. 
If you are going to outwit the devil, it's terribly important that you don't give him any advance notice. <laughs> oh, man, what a great line, eh? What a great line to kind of bring his whole point together. So uh, I just want to take a second here. I'll, I'll take this off because it's kind of hard to hear myself. Come on. I just want to take a second here and talk a little bit about kind of religious and spiritual metaphor because a lot of people who lean left and are socialists don't like that kind of talk. And I completely understand that. And the only thing I'd say here is like, listen, I'm, I'm an atheist, but what we're doing right now is it's more about the metaphor than the mysticism, right? It's pretty clear that we're not talking about actual devils inside us. In fact, he very much so says that pretty much outright in the lecture. But what I do like in sort of these spiritual and religious concepts is using them as powerful metaphors to easily explain very secular things that are happening inside us that aren't easily explained in secular terms. Like the idea of your personal vices and hang-ups and personality flaws and your struggle against them it's difficult, I think, to articulate that in secular means, but if you say something like, I'm, I'm battling an internal devil or I'm battling an internal demon, people will understand right away what you're talking about. Anyway, let us continue here. And this is where the work of the Sly Man comes in. There you go. Put it, in, put it in other terms, in Hindu or Buddhist terms, in the popular terms of popular Hinduism and Buddhism. Liberation is getting out of the toils of karma. It's like this. <clears throat> During your many past lives, you've done all kinds of deeds, good and bad, and you are reaping the consequences of these deeds today. And also today, you are setting up future consequences. Now, before you can be liberated, you've got to pay off your karmic debts. And so the moment you set your foot on the path of liberation, you are apt to find that all your karmic creditors will come to your door. And that's why it's often said that people who start out on a serious work of yoga suddenly get sick and lose their money and their best friends drop dead and all kinds of ghastly things happen. That's because, you see, they served notice that they were going to do this. And so all the creditors came around. If you're going to leave town and you owe lots of money, you know, you mustn't announce that you're leaving or give a farewell party to your friends because the grocer will find out. So here we go a little bit over the concept of karma. At this point, I think karma is pretty well known as a, as a concept that most people have a firm grasp on, but I don't think I can really add anything more than what Alan Watts said there. But I find this idea of serving notice on your personal vices and personal character flaws to be very interesting. And the way he describes it, that essentially, that if you say to your vices, hey, I'm, I'm going to get rid of you, they'll basically say, fuck, no, you're not. They're, they're going to come and they're going to surround you with absolutely everything they can and come up with every single way that they could stop you from getting rid of this habit and getting rid of this, this weight on your shoulders that's dragging you down. And I don't know if you guys have ever been addicted to cigarettes or alcohol or anything like that, any, any type of addictive behavior. You'll notice that when you try and drop it and you try and give it up, it's like your brain floods you with even more thoughts and even more temptations to pick it back up again. And this simply isn't a problem that you can just kind of willpower yourself out of. You can't just be like, oh, shut it down, shut down my urges. It doesn't work that way, but there are some options and we're going to start to explore them. So the art of the sly man is to make no contest, but simply to leave without one word. 
In other words, there will be, that's the meaning of Wu Wei in, in the technical vocabulary of Taoism. Wu Wei, not to interfere, not to force things. That's the best translation of Wu Wei, not to force things. So you may have remembered that in our last episode, I kind of brought up a little bit of that philosophy of Wu Wei, of not forcing things, of letting things run their course. Sort of my recommended personal relationship philosophy is not to force things. So he just drops it like that. But you are, you're in this respect, you see, you're your own worst enemy. Because even if you serve notice privately on yourself, that suddenly you're going to drop it all. Already the devil knows. Because who do you think the devil is? <laughs> now this lies behind the whole problem that is discussed in the book Zen in the Art of Archery. The necessity of letting go of the bowstring without first deciding to do so. Another way of putting it is that the decision to release the bowstring and the action of doing so must be simultaneous. Not to decide and then act, but to act, decide all at once. So I think the, a good way to break down in secular terms what he's saying is, I, I think this is a fascinating way of thinking of it too, is that essentially your vices exist in that kind of space in between your cognitive thought and your action. That in between when you decide that you're going to do something or not decide that you're going to do something, the, the devil, as it were, kind of worms his way right in between those two actions and says, no, you're not. I'm overriding this whole thing. Now, why is this? If you are going to be an expert archer, you must shoot before you think. Otherwise, it'll be too late. You don't aim and then shoot. It's all one action. And uh, this is true, likewise, of any sort of shooting, pistol shooting as well. That if you aim, if you, if you decide and then fire, you're apt to do things like pulling the trigger instead of squeezing. All kinds of wrong things are done. And you're always a moment too late if you decide first. You have to act and decide simultaneously. So what does that do, you see? That puts up a very curious problem, which in its own turn becomes a bind. To try and act quickly enough so that you overtake the preliminary decision. To try not to decide first. And that is an impossible problem. Think about it in terms of trying to prove that something doesn't exist, right? It's impossible which is why we have the standard of innocent until proven guilty, because you can't effectively prove that something didn't happen just in the same way as you can't really effectively decide not to decide. I wonder if you ever read von Kleist's story about the fighting bear. The, uh, this is included in Nancy Wilson Ross's book, The World of Zen, as a kind of Western Zen. It's a story about a man who has a fight with a circus bear. And the, the bear reads his mind and always forestalls any attack that he makes on it. There's absolutely nothing he can do to get past the bear. And so in the same way, you might imagine a guru who is a mind reader, and he always knows if you decide before you act, and if you do, you see, the devil will catch you. Instead, you see, of deciding that you won't be an alcoholic anymore, 
the only thing to do is not to drink, without any previous decision on this. But how can anyone do that, you see? That's the question. How can I decide not to decide? How can I announce that I won't make any announcement without making an announcement? It reminds me of people who like make these big announcements that they're leaving social media, right? It always has to come with this big, long block of text about why they're getting off Twitter or Facebook or whatever. You see, there is no way out of that bind. Try as you may. You go on and on and on, trying, as Herigl did, to release the bowstring without thinking first to release it. But then, strangely enough, one day, the thing happened. He did it. And this is involved in our learning <clears throat> of almost all techniques that we work and work to achieve that final point of perfection. And it doesn't come, it doesn't come, and then one day it happens. Now, what is the reason for that? Is it simply, and this is really, you know, a way it's usually explained, but this is an oversimplification. It is not that we have practiced it so often that it suddenly becomes perfect. It is much more subtle than that. What happens is that we've practiced so often that we find out we can't do it. And it happens at the moment you know you can't do it. When you reach a certain point of despair, when you know that you are the one weird child who will never be able to swim, at that moment you're swimming. Because the desperation and the total inability to do it at all has brought you to a point which we might call don't care. You stop trying. You stop not trying. Trying to get it that way. You just ha have arrived at the insight that your decision, your will, doesn't have any part in the thing at all. And that's what you needed to know. Have you guys ever had an experience like that? I think I've had similar experiences maybe two or three times in my lifetime where you have that moment of realization and it all comes to you. And it's like, it is very much how he describes that you kind of have to get to this point where you don't really give a crap anymore. And all of a sudden it all makes sense. It's like one of the most amazing sort of emotional roller coasters you can experience in life, this point of giving up. And then at the moment you give up, all of a sudden everything makes sense. And it's interesting that not only in a lot of uh, sort of practical skills, this, this phenomenon is described, but also learning languages. One thing that I've talked to a lot of people who learn languages, essentially what happens is that they listen and listen and listen, and they study and study and study, and it, it's not making sense. It's not making sense. And then all of a sudden, one day, boom, it all comes together. And all of a sudden, oh my God, it, it's all unlocked. And I can understand this language fluently. And I, I imagine it's probably a similar type of process there. You've overcome, you see, the illusion of having a separate ego. There is no way of telling anyone that that's an illusion and getting appropriate action because we are thoroughly indoctrinated with the idea that it's real. And if I say, well, I'm going to get rid of my ego, that's what the Taoists call beating a drum in search of a fugitive. He hears you coming. I just, I love his turn of phrases so much. That's another one of my favorites. The idea of beating a drum in search of a fugitive. God, I wish I could bring some stories about that one forward. 
So the, the, the ego, that is to say, the illusion of having a separate will and a separate eye center, that can be an effective agent. That cannot be overcome by a decision which seems to be centered in the ego. You might as well put out fire with fire. It can come only when an attempt to act from the ego center has been revealed to be completely futile. So here we're coming very quickly to the point of this lecture and, and the point of this video, why I want to make this video, which is that I find this idea so fascinating that in order to achieve sort of self-fulfillment, self-perfection, achieving, like you mentioned, that the version of yourself that you're completely comfortable with, you have to at first jettison the idea of yourself as sort of an egocentric being to begin with. The only way you can reach the pinnacle of self-improvement is to understand the fact that there was no self to begin with. Because at that point, you've essentially unlocked this almost superpower, the ability to act and decide simultaneously, to be able to take your ego out of the equation and simply rely on your own processes. And this is something that I personally have not been able to do. I still struggle with this idea of shedding your ego. But I understand that that enlightenment has to come about through a different way than what we talked about earlier, the fakir, the monk, and the yogi, the either intelligence-based, body-based, or emotional-based learning. It has to come from a higher plane of contemplation, if you will. All right, let's continue here. We're almost at the end. Then the thing happens, because you've really discovered that it was, after all, an illusion. Now, be very careful how you formulate this sort of thing philosophically. This could, of course, correspond to the kind of person who feels unafraid and who feels very free because he's a complete fatalist. A lot of people are, and are very happy in their fatalism. They, they, they really feel that they, they don't do anything, it just happens, and that it's all life, and that when they, when they won't die until it's their time to die, and so why worry? Everything, they have the sense of everything is just happening to them. And this is a kind of a floating feeling. You know, this is a very common feeling. I wouldn't say so much among Western folks, but particularly among Indians, if you know a lot of Indian people and talk to them, you'll find that they have a very fatalistic attitude of the world. It's as if you didn't have to push things at all. They just flowed along. Well, now that state of affairs, that feeling of you don't have to push anything, it just floats along, is very similar to the experience I'm describing, if not the same thing. But this person has interpreted it as a fatalist in a rather passive way. That is to say, he has felt that there still is some kind of a little differentiation between himself as the experiencer on the one hand and that force or set of forces called fate on the other. He is pushed around, but he witnesses being pushed around. Now, in this state, this person still has a little fragment of impurity left. There's still one fly left in the ointment. And that is the sensation of being pushed around. There is still a fundamental division between the knower and the known. And in this case, the case of the fatalist, the knower seems to be the passive thing, 
and everything known, the objective world or the goings-on of his own physiology, they appear to be the active end. And the knower just has the experience of himself being moved, 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 moved by the tides of life. The important thing to find out is this, that the sensation of being the knower and the experiencer of all this is not, as it were, aside from everything else that's going on, but part of it. Just as you, although you experience your own existence subjectively, you are nevertheless part of the external world. You are in my external world, just as I am in your external world. We're all in this external so world together. So in this way, the final barrier between the knower and the known is broken down. There is nobody, as it were, being carried along by fate. There is just the process. So this here, I'm not going to lie, I, I kind of really get off the bus here. This is getting a little bit too metaphysical and religious for my taste. Personally, that being said, the philosophy is certainly interesting, in my opinion, and worthy of contemplation. And all that you are is part of the process. Then there is a curious flip. The individual who has always felt himself to be the tiny little thing on the end of the big determining process, suddenly goes bloop. Have you watched sometimes a tiny little piece of mercury coming nearer and nearer to a large piece of mercury? The sudden moment when they touch each other and bloop, the little thing vanishes into the big one almost more dramatically than a drop into the ocean. So to break down what he's saying here is essentially what he's saying is it's actually very similar to Hegel in a way that we all kind of, through this process of examining ourselves against other things, we eventually learn that we're all consciousness and everything is consciousness. Kind of a similar thing here, but through the process of essentially being or feeling like we're separate from the world, we come to learn that we actually weren't separate from the world, that this was in fact what the so-called process was wanting us to feel the entire time and wanted us to feel separate. So essentially that we could learn to come together. It's kind of similar and, and, and funny too. It's in a way, it's like sort of communist or socialist thinking that over time you learn that the state was kind of worthless and it withers away through this process of, of self-reflection and experimenting and trying to find that version of yourself that you are most comfortable with, a similar thing happens where the ego fades away and withers away and you learn that that wasn't part of who you were to begin with. So we may see a version of ourselves that has potentially is more fit, more active, smarter, looks different, that sort of thing. But through the process of achieving those things and achieving a version of ourselves that may be more fit or more intelligent or what have you, we begin to learn that that wasn't actually ourselves to begin with. That we learn that, yes, maybe this version of ourselves that we've achieved is a little bit more congruent with how we see ourselves. But at the end of the day, there's still more work to do. And this, all that this basically self-improvement did was just bring me up to the next level. So once I reached the version of myself that I thought I would be comfortable with, turns out 
I'm actually not as comfortable with that as I thought I would be. So I need to start the process of looking for the next step and looking for the next step and looking for the next step until you get to the point where you eventually realize that this idea of yourself as an ego entity was worthless. Well, not, not worthless. Don't, <laughs> not worthless, but it was not necessary for you to achieve that pinnacle of self-actualization. It turns out that that own separate ego identity that you thought you were trying to achieve actually didn't exist. That this was simply the process trying to get you to the point where you could realize that it wasn't necessary in the first place. All right, let's wrap this up. Then I can give my closing thoughts and opinions. In this case that I'm talking about, it isn't that the individual organism vanishes. The individual human being doesn't vanish, but he experiences no longer a passive relationship to the world. He simply sees that all that he is and all that he ever was, was something that the entire process was doing. At the time, in other words, when he felt himself to be separate, he sees that that is in a certain way just what he should have felt because that was what the process was doing in him in exactly the same way that it was giving him brown, brown or blue eyes or blonde or brunette hair. And that's going through the door and turning around and seeing there wasn't a door, a finding that you aren't fated, that you're not trapped because there's nobody in the trap and it takes something trapped to make a trap. So that brings us to the end of this particular video and lecture. And what I want to do is kind of bring together all of these thoughts and concepts and, and relate them to our theme of self-improvement here and how the art of the sly man can be used in your own self-improvement. And I'll tell you guys, I've always been interested in things like Stoic philosophy, or in this case, Buddhist philosophy, Hindu philosophy, Taoist philosophy, because they are always more inward facing philosophical values. I always prefer those values, which ask you to look into yourself and improve yourself. I've always really kind of thought that those are valuable. On the other hand, where a lot of Western religions, I feel like they do not see it that way. They see it as you need to go out there and basically approve quote unquote other people before working on yourself. So what is the takeaway here? What exactly through all of this, what is Alan Watts saying about how you can achieve a liberation as he would put it, or as I like to put it, self-actualization. So I think the first big takeaway is don't be afraid to experiment with who you are, unless you are in this wonderful place where you feel like you're a completely holistic person totally at ease with themselves i will be the first to say that i know i am not in that place personally but unless you are one of those people don't be afraid to experiment with yourself you never know which aspects of yourself you might find really fit and which don't sometimes you might think that we'll finally be comfortable with ourselves like i said if maybe you work out some and get a more fit body or you improve your intelligence or you get a new job and get more money all of those can definitely help because they give you a stable baseline in one sense. But once you reach these goals, you'll probably find that this isn't actually what I was seeking. I'm seeking something deeper. 
And through that, you kind of need to do that basic self-analysis of trying to bring yourself together on the one hand, wanting to desire and the other hand, not wanting to desire, if you will. Next is to work on your slime man. Basically, you don't have to make big announcements for everything that you do. You don't have to post all these pictures of your journey and make a big deal of self-improvement on Instagram or what have you. Because all that that will do is essentially allow opportunity for your vices and personality flaws to worm their way in. So sometimes you just need to do things. You just need to make no contest. Or sometimes like you just need to leave a toxic situation without giving any previous warning or announcement. Because people could try and stop you. And when it comes to your own self-improvement, don't let people stop you. That's for sure. And particularly, the number one person to not let you stop you is yourself. The next I would say is try and move towards that ego dissolution. And I, I will admit, again, this is a very difficult process because like he mentions that as soon as you try and say, I'm, I'm going to get rid of you, or even just the act of explaining that the ego is unnecessary, will essentially put it into like self-defense mode. And as he talks about in the lecture that the only way to essentially eliminate this reliance on your ego is to eventually get to a point where you realize that decisions and input from the ego are unnecessary at best and unhelpful at worst. And this is what the art of practice will eventually get you to as he speaks about. So the only way I would say to achieve this Zen-like status is to practice to the point where you do not care anymore. And that is a very difficult thing to do to get your ego not to care about something that you have spent a lot of time telling it that you care about. And on a personal level, I'm really trying to get there with learning Japanese. It's something that I care a lot about, that I spent a lot of time studying. And I am just trying to get to that point where I can kind of get over that hill and get to the point where I would consider myself very fluent in the language. I would say that I'm an advanced speaker, but I'm not at the point where I consider myself fluent by any stretch of the imagination. And I'm hoping that one day I cannot care about this aspect of myself where it all becomes clear. But I'm sure that many of you have various passions and aspects and personality quirks about yourself that you are trying to rise in this way and trying to achieve that level of Zen perfection. And it's definitely not easy. And if you're not getting there, don't get discouraged because brute forcing it isn't necessarily the way to achieve that kind of breakthrough that you want. So I hope you guys didn't mind that I let Alan Watts really breathe there. And I try not to interject too, too much because I feel like I can't really articulate anything better than he does. Maybe then to try and articulate some of the finer points. I also hope you guys enjoyed the little bit more philosophical bent of this episode. Most of these first episodes are all about plank building and setting up the themes and structures for aspects of the show moving forward. And many of the concepts that we talked about today have improved my life personally greatly. And I've managed to integrate many of them into my everyday life. So I wanted to kind of weave them into the fabric of the show today. And there is so much more we could talk about. However, I feel like this is really an introduction to these concepts. We can't delve super deep into all these really ancient philosophical 
and religious concepts all in the span of half an hour or however long this episode will end up being. So yeah, this is just scratching like the surface of the surface right now. And unfortunately, that's going to bring us to the end of our show. Sorry for a shorter episode today. Like I mentioned, this week and next week, I am short on recording time. So the second part of the episode that usually contains more of the politics and the current events and that sort of stuff will be next week. But in the meantime, I hope that this tidied you guys over. And I really hope it gave you some food for thought, if you will, and maybe gave you some new perspectives about viewing the world and some different ideas to think about. And before I go, I just want to leave you with one last quote from Alan Watts here. And this, to me, really signifies something that is a, a serious issue in our time. Call it the curse of the terminally online, if you will. Fun fact, I actually got the title for the show from this particular talk by Alan Watts. Yes, Chatter in the Skull is indeed an Alan Watts quote. So there you go, mystery solved. So he says here, All so-called civilized peoples have become increasingly crazy and self-destructive because through excessive thinking, they have lost touch with reality. That is to say, we confuse signs, words, numbers, symbols, and ideas with the real world. So what I think he's saying here is touch grass every so often. Yes, we read the news, which I would say is kind of these signs, words, symbols. We listen to people on YouTube. But ultimately, these people are basically signs. They're symbols. They're not the real world. And through basically treating them like they are, we're all going a little bit crazy. So just make sure to remind yourself that, yes, the world of online political discourse, news, current events, whatever you want to say, does exist. But your personal world exists too. And make sure you nurture it. Anyway. With that, I want to thank you guys for watching. This has been The Comrade. Sign off for now. Until next time, you guys take care.